0: Um, No doubt, some of you have seen the TV game show, Family Feud, whereby the game show host makes members of competing families guess the results of a survey that was conducted by the show's organizers. The show's been on the air for a long time now, uh, but just so you know, the last time I saw Family Feud, Richard Dawson, the original host, was still the host, and there have been five more hosts since he left the show, so that should give you an idea as to my age and how little TV I watch nowadays. Anyway, I was looking online at some survey results of a question that probably will never be asked in Family Feud. It's this question. What Christian doctrines do preachers find most difficult to preach on? Now, there there are variations among surveys, but the three doctrines that often show up in the top five are the following. The final judgment predestination, and hell. It would be hard enough for someone to preach on any single one of these doctrines. In our passage today, we have all three. (laughs) And I'm suspecting that our pastor not being here today is not the result of predestination. (laughs) At any rate, I'm starting off being lighthearted about the passage that Judy just read. I mean, the passage is, to say the least, is very sobering, perhaps even terrifying depending on where you see yourself in it. This portion of scripture concludes what is known as the Olivet Discourse, which began in Matthew 24. And just to review what we've heard recently, three weeks ago in 24, verses 36 to 51, Jesus told his disciples that the day and the hour of his return is unknown, and he counseled them to be vigilant. Two weeks ago, in the parable of the wise and foolish virgins, Jesus taught them to be prepared for his coming. And last week, as Daniel preached on the parable of the talents, Jesus taught his disciples to be diligent and productive while they waited. Now, looking at those passages, um, it's not always explicit whether Jesus was instructing his disciples to be ready uh, for the judgment that was to come on Jerusalem in 70 AD or to prepare for his final coming. But in this last portion of the discourse, the one that Judy just read, it's clear that Jesus is speaking of his final return. Because here, he foretells what will happen at the end of the age. And this passage is packed. And I would like to go through it in sections. First, let's look at verses 31 to 33. Let me read them again. When the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Now here we have imagery of Jesus as king sitting on his throne. His throne is a throne of judgment, and the first thing he'll do when he comes in glory is to gather everyone from every nation before him. This is... An especially difficult doctrine to accept without a great degree of discomfort or anxiety. Western culture in general, in our own nation's thinking in particular, puts a high premium on the virtue of inclusivity or tolerance. I mean, a lot of people abhor, they hate any hint of exclusion or intolerance in just about any area of life. That's why pluralism, Relativism and universalism are worldviews that continue to increase in popularity, even among professing Christians. And that's why most people, instead of the scene that our Lord described, they visualize a different scene the moment they enter the afterlife, the most common of which is that of St. Peter at the pearly gates, interviewing people, seemingly cavalier serious sins that would prevent someone's entrance into heaven. Or perhaps some people think of God as, you know, by nature embracing of all people, taking into consideration their hurts and what kind of uh, ac- kind of acceptance just be, uh, based on how much they've tried or how much they suffered. And we often see these depicted in editorial cartoons, comic strips and such. You see those the, the, how people think of heaven. Now, we do live in a world that mostly believes in salvation by death. All you have to do to go to heaven is to die. Not so in the description that the Lord gives us. In the separation, or in, in yes, yeah, in the separation, He used the metaphor of sheep and goats. Now, in ancient Israel, just as it is still today in a lot of third world countries, it was common for sheep and goats to be kept together. They grazed together. But then these animals had to be separated at the end of the day on a daily basis because as night falls, the shepherd has to draw the goats away because they did not have the wool to keep them warm when the temperature drops. Now, Jesus was using imagery that his disciples would be familiar with but the reason for the separation was totally different. It had nothing to do with keeping the goats from the cold, so to speak. The goats were placed on one side and the sheep on another, one to a place of dishonor and the other to a place of honor. So we, here we have Jesus making it clear that there will be a separation, a final judgment that is so very unlike checking in with St. Peter at the pearly gates. Let's move on to verses 34 to 36, where the Lord pronounces his blessing on the sheep. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. At this point, it's very tempting to take this passage and see it as a basis for salvation by works. After all, the Lord mentions feeding the hungry, giving drink to the thirsty, clothing the naked, and so on. So doesn't that mean that our works are involved in salvation? Well, if we isolate verses 35 and 36 of this passage from the rest of Scripture, it might seem so. But we are told over and over in Scripture that justification and consequently salvation is by faith alone and works play no part in it. And so we come back to the critical, often asked question, how does one come to saving faith? Let's consider again what Jesus says in verse 34, where Jesus says that those same people represented by the sheep are blessed by the Father and have an inheritance. Now, the idea of receiving an inheritance presumes that the recipient is part of the family, an heir. And Scripture does say that those who receive an inheritance do so by virtue of the Father adopting them into His family. For instance, Galatians 4:6-7. Paul writes this to the Galatian believers. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Also in Romans chapter 8, verses 16-17, Paul writes this, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So when we are adopted by the Father into his family, we become, as it were, younger brothers and sisters of Jesus. And when that happens, we become joint heirs of the Father along with his singular heir, the Lord Jesus, the Son. So in the final judgment, it's as if Jesus is saying, because you were adopted, you're in the will. That's effectively what he was saying. You were adopted so you are in the will. You are receiving an inheritance. Now, word about adoption. Adoption is a unilateral act. I cannot take steps to have myself adopted into the Rockefeller or Gates family so that I will become a rightful heir to those families' riches. They'll have to adopt me. Do they have any reason to? Not that I know of. I know it's not going to be for my dashing good looks. (laughs) There's not a sane reason I can think of why they would adopt me, so I'm not keeping my hopes up. What about our adoption by the father? Well, in my case, I can't do enough good works to be adopted by the father anymore that I can do something to convince Bill Gates to adopt me. It was solely by the Father's sovereign pleasure. In Ephesians 1, verses 5 to 6, this is what Paul writes. In him we have un- obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that he who were the first to hope in Christ might be the pra- to the praise of his glory. The Father chose to adopt those who will be in his family before they were born, before they heard the gospel, before they ever did any good or bad thing. For what purpose? So that the purposes of God's sovereign grace may be established and the Son may be honored for eternity. We brought nothing before the Father that made any of us special. And this doctrine of God's sovereign choice, this doctrine of predestination can certainly cause confusion because of the tension that exists between God's choices and man's responsibilities. But one thing that it should not make us do is question God or raise objections for the choices he makes. As a society, this is hard for us to accept because we value fairness. And we are bothered by the notion that God makes unfair choices or that he has the authority to make unilateral decisions. But the Apostle Paul anticipated this. I'm glad he did. He wrote in Romans 9, verses 1-4, to What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And he answers his own question. By no means. In the New King James Version, it says, Certainly not. And in the much older King James, it says, God forbid. To which we should say, Okay, Paul, we get it. We get it. And I hope we do. And if you're still struggling with this doctrine, speak to someone and confess your struggles because to some degree, we probably all wrestle with it. But let me just say that there's no greater demonstration of grace than this doctrine. You want to come to a greater understanding of it because it leads to a greater degree of worship. For myself, I cannot point to any reason why I am in the kingdom of God and someone else is not. It's certainly not because of anything I've done and that causes me all the more to bow the knee before him and thank him and worship him because I realize it's all by his sovereign grace. And This doctrine also gives us hope for the future. It enables us to let go of things that we hold near and dear and his promise to preserve us and to help us persevere, it builds our hope. It's a great doctrine. So continuing with our passage, let me read verses 37 to 40. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And then, when did we see you a stranger and welcome you naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick sick, or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. If you've been a Christian long enough, you've probably heard this quote from Calvin. Faith alone saves, but faith that saves is never alone. Or, said another way, good works do not result in salvation, but salvation results in good works. These are not biblical quotes, but they do line up with the truth of Scripture. Works play no part in salvation. However, justification by faith is not merely a profession of faith. Anyone... Who possesses saving faith ultimately does good works therefore the ultimate test by which we will be determined to be in Christ or not is by the presence or absence of fruit in our lives and we think if we think about it this analogy of good works and fruit from a fruit tree it works so well imagine that we had a bunch of different trees growing in this property how can we tell if we had any apple trees among them? Well, if we're not botanists or farmers, the simplest way would be just to see if any of them produces apples. And if they do, then they're apple trees. And Jesus, speaking of how well we can, how we can tell apart true followers from false followers, he said in Matthew 7.20, Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. And if there are apple trees... What do they need to do to produce apples? Well, if they receive the right amount of water and sun and proper nutrients from the soil, they don't have to do anything to produce apples. An apple tree doesn't have to uproot itself, run around the compound, and do some jumping jacks to produce fruit. It occurred to me that in this case we could call them apple jacks. Some of you saw that coming. I could tell. It just has to stand there. It just has to stand there and be an apple tree. It comes naturally. So good works come naturally to those who are justified and truly saved by faith. Notice that the righteous, or the sheep, asked Jesus this question. When did we do all these things? When did we feed you? When did we clothe you? And Jesus said, "You." as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. The good works did not come from a desire to impress God with their acts of righteousness, but they came naturally out of a desire to serve the one who gave his life for them. Now from the passage, these sheep, they were not even aware that they were serving Jesus when they were serving their neighbors. And when they were doing so, they were obeying Christ. And this is one way we can examine ourselves in, in light of our desire to serve. You know, what, what, what the sheep did, they simply did what the Spirit moved them to do, and when they gave their lives in service to others, they were actually obeying and serving Christ. They didn't know it. We should ask ourselves, in our desire to serve, do we serve with joy the, those who are insignificant, undistinguished, hidden, perhaps considered not so important by society standards, or do we seek to serve the prominent, the conspicuous, the noticeable? Friends, if the pattern in your life is to do the former rather than the latter, then praise God, because you have been given a new heart, one that seeks to serve and honor the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I wish we could end on his note, but we have to look at the rest of the passage in which Jesus had a very different message for the goats, those who are not part of the redeemed, those who are not saved by faith. He said in verses 41 to 46, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. but the righteous into eternal life. Why were those represented by the goats told that they are cursed and to depart from Jesus? Well, because they failed to do the very things the righteous did, which is to feed Jesus when he was hungry, clothe Jesus when he was naked, give Jesus drink when he was thirsty, uh, thirsty, and so on. So in their defense, they asked, Lord, when when did we ever see you hungry? When did we ever see you naked? thirsty and we did not minister to you what they seem to be saying is this if they had ever seen Jesus in such need they surely would have ministered to him they were seeking and only willing to serve someone great and as such they failed to see the needs of the not so prominent who were nevertheless Jesus's people and by failing to minister to Jesus's people to the least of those who belong to him, they failed him. The goats will not have the work to show that they are justified. And we're talking about the works that come naturally a result of, as a result of being in God's family. Now, a point of clarification here. Among ourselves, we can see that many people, even people outside the church, are capable of what we would consider good works. On the surface, it is difficult, if not impossible, to tell if a good work we observe from someone is a fruit of saving faith. So then, why are people able to do these things apart from a faith in Christ? Well, let's remember that even though our entire being, our spirit, our mind, our body, is tainted by sin, we are still image bearers of the God, the one who created us. And that remnant, that residual of God's goodness, enables us to perform acts that are generally good. But ultimately, what makes a good work good in the sight of God is if that work is done by one whose life abides in Christ. In Isaiah 64.6, Scripture declares that quote, all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, or in a more commonly known translation, filthy rags. It's As if we took a bushel of apples and using a stapler or some duct tape, we went out and attached them to the nearby trees. That does not make them an apple tree. The apples that we attach, we do that, will eventually rot and fall off, and the tree will be revealed for what it's not. It's not an apple tree. Brethren, we are exhorted by the word to examine ourselves in this regard. 1 Corinthians 13.5 says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? How are we to test ourselves, especially when we tend to grade ourselves on a curve, and hence we engage in self-deception? If we're going to test ourselves, how how will we do that? this is where the church comes in this is where the body of Christ comes in you have heard it time and again from this pulpit ask somebody do you see fruit in my life that would indicate that I'm a new creation in Christ Now, the answer to this question will not come easy or with a great degree of accuracy if your life is not known to the people in this body and I'm not talking about being known by scores of people Really, one person who knows you and is willing to be honest with you is enough. And being known, being able to observe if someone is leaving a trail of fruit in their lives, that can take time. That's why we can't overemphasize being part of a local church, being known by people, and not merely for a short time, but God willing for the long haul. That's why we have care groups. That's why we're promoting a culture of discipleship where we can know people and be known ourselves. We can all see what's at stake in the last verse of our passage. The judgment pronounced by Christ in verse 46 on the goats is as chilling as it is final. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. At this point, I have a choice to speak on whether, on either where the sheep are going or where the goats are headed. With the remaining time I have, I would like to speak on the latter. And while I have to say, is for everyone here, I would like to especially address you, if you are here this morning and you know that in your mind and in your heart, you have doubts about the claims of Christ being the only way to be reconciled to God, or perhaps you know that you have categorically rejected His claims. We've heard of the surveys indicating that a large majority of people believe in hell. I think it's 86 percent. But not one who believes in its existence believes they're going there. Or if they think they're going there, or there's a possibility that they're going to hell, it's not going to be so bad. For instance, Ted Turner, the founder of CNN, thinks that because heaven is perfect it's going to be boring. And because hell is a mess, we'll have a chance to make the place better, and that's better than being bored. Some people think hell's not going to be too bad because most of their friends are going to be there. Some religions attempt to soften this difficult doctrine, such as the Jehovah's Witnesses. They have this idea of annihilation, or the universalist church idea that everybody will be saved. But many of these ideas, while they provide a somewhat better scenario of hell they have no basis in Scripture I grew up in the Catholic faith where the idea of purgatory is taught purgatory is a temporary place for those souls that are in a holding pattern they're not bad enough to be sent to hell but not quite good enough for heaven at least not yet that gives everyone some reason to be optimistic about their chances of going to heaven if they didn't commit any of the big sins like murder, theft, adultery, and so on. But likewise, there's no mention of purgatory in Scripture or, for that matter, any form of second chance. In Hebrews 9.27, it's written, written, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, after that comes the judgment. There is no reincarnation to a new life on earth. A judgment awaits each of us. And that's why we're courting mortal, eternal danger, if we keep ignoring this issue, clinging to a hope that it's not that bad. The truth is, it's worse than we can imagine, and it's eternal. The Lord Jesus himself made that clear. So what are we to do about this teaching from the Lord? I know this is a very sobering passage, but with the little time I have left, let me bring an appeal, if you will. For those of you who know without a doubt that you have never trusted in Jesus Christ, perhaps never even given thought to the need to be reconciled to God, consider the passage we just studied and ask God in all honesty and sincerity to open your eyes to the truth of the claims of Christ. Because ultimately it's not by eloquent words, it's not by anything or I or anyone else say or convincing arguments that opens a person's eyes. It's ultimately by the Spirit of God breathing life into a spirit that has been made dead by sin. It's our hope and our prayer that God will do that for you today. Speak to someone about this. Speak to someone. You are not here this morning by accident. And it says in Hebrews 3.15, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So I make that appeal to you and speak to somebody. And for the Christian here, may these words encourage you and give you joy as you minister, knowing that the smallest acts of service and kindness, whether it be giving a cup of cool water to the thirsty, or giving a word of encouragement to the faint-hearted, they're all done in service to the King who has redeemed you. As the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight, Therefore, my beloved brothers, Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Your labor is not in vain. May these reminders give you hope as you look forward to the day when you hear the words from him, the words that we all want to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. At this time, let's take a few minutes to humbly and silently go before the Lord, who we will one day see seated on his glorious throne. And at the end of that time, Larry will come up and close us in prayer. Thank you.